Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am the sun and the air of a shyness that is criminally vulgar. Um, I'm still Kev. <laughs> you sound quite perturbed. <laughs> I was a little bit. <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Tim. Yourself? Yeah, not bad at all. Looking forward to today's album that we're going through, and I still haven't decided how I'm going to score either of these two. No, it, it will very much come down to the last minute uh, with me. Yeah, indeed. So, just to remind people, uh, last week I went through Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Kev, what are you going through today? So, we will be going through Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions. So, the theme, the connection. So, this is our musical cities season. The connection here is Detroit and Motown Records. But before we get on to any of that, it is your pick for Video Kill the Radio Star. And a very interesting pick it is too. Yeah, I decided to go with something different. So I'm sure our listeners are well au fait with the concept of a lyric video, which has become increasingly sort of prevalent on YouTube and that. But I was interested to see if anyone had done anything interesting with a lyric video. And boy, this band did. So the song uh, that we're talking about is Dream by French band Husbands. It's a few years old. And as I say, it is a lyric video, but it's really interesting how they've done it. So there's like a template of the various lyrics and within the song, and they light up when that word is said. And it's such an innovative uh, way of doing a lyric video. And I also included it because there's some fantastic font work going on. <laughs> My first note is, Kevin, you selected this video purely based on its use of fonts. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is true. It is phenomenal, though. So, yeah, it's directed by Cowboys. And as so, yeah, it, a lot of lyric videos are done digitally. This was not. This was hand-built. Each of the lyrics in the song, as you said, mounted on a backboard and then lit via synchronised lighting uh, in time with the music. It's so clever, but so simple and so effective. I mean, in terms of the song, I'd never heard the song before or seen the video before you, you sent me the link. I really like the song. Very hot chip to me. Yeah, it's, it's very French electro, really. Yeah, it's a really simple concept, as I said. The execution is perfect. I do have a quote from Cowboys, if I may read. Yeah, sure. Uh, So they said, It was important for us to create real letters instead of doing it digitally. We weren't even sure it was going to work. What was it going to look like? Finally, the exposure was good, and we just needed to play it live with rhythm by pushing the right buttons. Yeah phenomenal and again it shows how despite the fact of the advances in sort of digital technology and that the doing something old school and doing making something works really well and we had something similar the week before where Mm -hmm. you could have done that through sort of digital manipulation and trickery but the the genius and the the beauty of these kind of of the video art is when it's done in this sort of way yeah 
definitely. So we will post the link to that video on our socials. The last thing I want to say about it, as we are going to post the link, is warning. This video contains flashing images. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Great choice. Really, really good. Enjoyed it. Grand. Um, so there's nothing left to do but to start um, talking about the backgrounds of Innervisions. Yeah, please. Over to you. So as, as ever... The, a few factuals to start us off. It was the 16th studio album by Stevie Wonder. 23-year-old Stevie Wonder. 16th album. <laughs> fucking hell. It fucking worked him. Prolific. <laughs> Released on the Tamla imprint uh, for Motown on the 3rd of August 1973 and was recorded at the Record Plant LA and Media Sound Studios in New York. And what you can say, as we as we did last week, is this album was massively influenced by what's going on and is equally as broad in the range of subjects it covered, including drug abuse, systemic racism, Richard Nixon and uh, religious corruption. And Stevie, so this is part of what's known as the golden period, which mm. starts with the first album that I got into of Stevie Wonder's, which was Music of My Mind, and then Talking Book. And he he was trying to move away from the little Stevie Wonder, the, the little Stevie Wonder of fingertips and that thing, and become more serious in his writing. So, and it also speaks to what Marvin Gaye had started. So... Stevie said at the time, we as a people are not interested in baby, baby songs anymore. There's more to life than that. And it, that's similar to obviously where Marvin Gaye got to yeah. in 71. And it was a really personal work for him. So Stevie, um, speaking to the New York Times in 1973, said, Inner Visions gives my own perspective on what's happening in my world, to my people, to all people. That's why it took me seven months to get it together. I did all the lyrics, and that's why I think it's my most personal album. I don't care if it only sells five copies. This is the way I feel. Brilliant. Yeah. And he'd had to battle for creative freedom. And he was really clever how he did it as well. The, he allowed his Motown contract to run down. And he recorded both Music of My Mind and Talking Book out of contract. So, yeah, can I just come back a little bit before that? So Yeah, sure. In April 1970, he releases Sign Seal Delivered, which was his 13th album. And he's, he's 20 years of age. 13 albums, he's 20 years of age. It's a great success. It's a really good album. It's the first album on which he gets a producer credit, although he only actually produced two of the tracks completely by himself. But as you said, he wants more creative control. He wants exactly as Marvin Gaye did, and because of what Marvin Gaye did on what's going on, Stevie wants a piece of that pie, so to speak. But Barry Gordy's having none of it because of the battles he's having with Marvin Gaye at the time. So, And I suppose as well that he was little Stevie Wonder. Yeah. You know, so he's this kid, this prodigy, who's come through Motown and suddenly starts to try and become his own person and express himself. Would it be unfair for me to say that in Berry Gordy's mind, Stevie Wonder was the goose that laid the golden egg? He was the poster child of Motown at this time. Maybe, but it's it's entirely possible. Anyway, sorry, over to you. I mean, so as I was sort of saying before, the, he allowed his Motown contract to run down and he records music on my mind and talking book out of contract. 
That's he, fucking brave. It is because you know if it goes wrong, he's on the hook for him. But he go he goes back to Motown and says, "Look, I've got these two. They listen to him. And they know they're good." And he forces them to give him a higher royalty rate and total control over what he was doing. And before that, he hadn't. He didn't have that kind of control. So just to come back, there was a clause in his original contract, which basically, it was a, call it a loophole, whatever you want. It basically allowed him on the day he became a legal adult, so when he turns 21, to declare his contract with with Tamla null and void and... Yeah, that is exactly what he did. He, he he basically called their bluff. He said, I, I'd, I'd like to know my contract, please. You are. No, no, no. Says I can. Off you go. And goes away and says, this is what I can do if you give me that creative control. So the fucking cojones to go away and do that. The confidence in, this is the word we used last week, but mm-hmm. I'm going to say it again. The confidence in your vision, in your art to say, I fucking know I'm going to make a success of this is just mind-blowing for a lad that was 21 years of age as well. I know. I mean, yeah. And like, as as we said, he was little Stevie Wonder. Like, he he was one of Motown's sort of core artists and he, he'd, he'd taken a gamble on his own art and fucking won, <laughs> you know. There's, there's, there's one other thing which gave him the stronger hand in all of these negotiations and, and it just shows that he was never naive he was always clever and had the business head. He, he, even throughout his original Motown contract, he owned the publishing rights to his own music. So he he, he knew he hadn't by the balls. Because mm-hmm. you can't even do what you've done with Marvin and cobble together a record when, I, when he's not going into the studio. Sorry, mate. It's my fucking music. I'll do with it what I please. So a, a very, very clever cookie with Stevie. Oh, yeah. So we'll move on to sort of the recording now we know that Stevie Wonder is a phenomenal musician, but seven of the nine songs on the album were played in their entirety by Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Um when we get into talking to Living for the City, he plays everything on it. I mean fucking hell. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not also experimenting and like you've seen his use of, of synths and that um on his previous albums, but the use of the Tonto synth and the expansion of the sound of soul and R&B through this, through this period is, is amazing. So Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margoulet. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I'm going with. Our creditors, co-producers, because they were the inventors and programmers for the Tonto synth. The original new timbrel orchestra which becomes a core of Stevie's sound during this golden period. And, and as we mentioned last week, not just that, but he's using Moog synths, he's using ARP synths, he's, he's making use of our old friend the Fender Rhodes, uh, yeah. which we'll be talking about later on. It's um, re- So this is, this is 73. So around this time, you've got disco starting to come to the fore, and I don't know exactly the years, but, but Giorgio Moroder's starting to experiment a lot more with the use of synthesizers you're just around the inception of what craft work would go on to be so there is a very clear and powerful new movement of electronic music and for stevie wonder to have his finger on the pulse to say not only am i going to make use of that on my records but i'm going to do it all myself 
and I'm going to blend it seamlessly with the soul, the R&B sound that has made me the star I am. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's so we will get into that. I'm sorry, I'm going on here. No, no, it's, you know, like quite rightly. So, three days after the release of the album, Stevie's being driven by his cousin, John Wesley Harris, on Interstate 85 after a show the night before in Greenville, South Carolina. Vehicle collides with a truck carrying logs, one of which smashed through the windshield and hit Stevie Wonder in the head. Ow. He was in a coma for four days. Was also visited by the Jackson 5 whilst he was in the coma because they were performing relatively close to where the accident happened. It took a year for him to recover. He was in intensive care for a week. He was still in hospital for like about a month. He, He refused to have plastic surgery to repair the mark left by the log as he wanted to leave it as one of the scars of life I went through. Brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) Now, his experience through this accident is something that we'll come back to in one of the most famous songs on this album later on, in terms of what he saw that it symbolised, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so do you have anything more to to say about the recording or anything like that? No, I think I've gushed over it enough without actually talking about any of the songs, so let's move on to artwork. (laughs) So the artwork is very famous. I used to have a copy of it in, hanging in my house at one point. Designed by Ephraim Wolf, who produced art for a number of albums. He was a, apparently he was originally intended to produce the cover for Talking Book, but they they kind of lost faith, so oh. decided to not go with him and went with the image that's on the cover of Talking Book. So the image itself depicts um, Stevie seeing the essentially seeing the world around him, which kind of links with some of the key themes of this album, as of his his vision of the world at that point. Yeah. So, so despite his blindness, his inner visions let him see the world around him, as you mm-hmm. say. It lets him see the problems in the world, and the sort of surrealist, abstract depictions are also on the inner sleeve and, and on the rear sleeve as well. It's, um, yeah, it's very, very famous. I'm going to talk about fonts now. Oh, uh, yeah. You've already you had your fun with the video. Nice 3D font. Uh, it reminds me of the opening titles of Superman. Oh, my. Have <laughs> <laughs> you Brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, I... Font equals Superman 1 was my notes. <laughs> Oh my god, wow. <laughs> we peak high mind. Clearly. Uh yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's, so it's... I mean, so let's try we we've started doing this in the last few clashes. Which is the better album cover then for you? I'm probably even though I have a copy of it up in my house, I'm probably going to go with Marvin Gaye. Yeah, he's right. It is Marvin. Because I can see so just to pull the curtain back on the pod a little bit. Tim has a has a sort of canvas of various album covers. I think we have talked about it before. And in the bottom corner is the cover of Songs in the Key of Life, which I think is a better cover. Yes, Songs in the Key of Life is a better cover, but Marvin is the best cover of these two albums. Yeah, okay, great stuff. Okay, so how did you first come across this album? Okay, so I said last week that I only really got into soul music around 2014 through you. Uh, and my introduction to this album was directly through you, so I knew your love of Stevie Wonder 
And so I remember asking you, what Stevie albums should I listen to? And you you basically said anything from music of my mind uh, through the next four or five albums. And this is one that you directly called out and said, listen to that one in particular. So, um, yeah, I was introduced to this album by yourself. How about you? Um, so, yeah, started off. So I was introduced to Stevie Stevie Wonder by, again, um, mentioned there before, by my older sister. She introduced me to music on my mind, and then I worked my way through his back catalogue, really. Very good. Uh, I think it's fair to say that he is one of your favourite artists. Yes, that is correct. Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the word I was uh, struggling to find. All right, okay, shall we get into it then? Yeah, let's do it. All right, then. Okay, so the album opens on Too High, a song dealing with drug addiction, which um, has a great funky kind of jazz inflection opening to it. (laughs) Or if you like, uh, that weird uh, point of view. (laughs) (laughs) Blah, 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 blah. Oh, long-time fans of Adam and Joe. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, you don't often hear songs about drugs on albums, so fair play to Stevie. <laughs> well, like a song dealing with drug addiction, opening with such a upbeat kind of... Well, like, you talked about, about Tonto. We talked about the electronic influences straight away with the, the synth part here and the bass part within... within, mm-hmm. within it's um, a surprisingly up-tempo and funky tune, considering the subject matter. Because it's not, well, it's not Tomorrow Never Knows, a song I've mentioned mm-hmm. a number of times, which is talking about the experience of being on an acid trip. It is very much warning of the perils of... Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's, it's of, not glorifying it at all. No, but yet it is a very up-tempo tune. So the drumming throughout is superb. And as ever with a Stevie Wonder song, the gob iron work. (laughs) (laughs) You are going to have to explain what a gob iron is. Uh, For those who who haven't heard the term before, harmonica, as is standard for a Stevie Wonder song. The mouth harp, (laughs) as it is more poetically called. Gob iron. Yeah, it's brilliant. It is brilliant. It is a classic Stevie harmonica part. Yeah, it's. Um, I just wanted to talk about a couple of the lyrics, like you said, about just to, just to really call out what we said about it not glorifying things. She's a girl of the past. I guess that I got to her at last. And did you hear the news about the girl today? She passed away. What did her friends say? They said she's too high, can't hang around anyway. Yeah, I've said about the drums. It's very jazzy with you know heavy cymbal usage. Mm-hmm. Let's say. I really, really like the sort of flange effect on Stevie's voice to give it that quite psychedelic Mm -hmm. effect, really, you know. Great start. Really like it. Yeah, it's a brilliant opening to the album. Okay, so if there's nothing more to say, we move on to the second song, uh, Visions, which talks of Stevie's vision of a brighter future for the country and around the hatred that's sort of going on at the time. The milk and honey land. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. Stevie's voice is so gentle and like the, the balance with the acoustic and a really sem- simple bass and like the electric cu- guitar coming in and lyrically as well. So I'll just quote 
So could a place like this exist so beautiful or do we have to take our wings and fly away to the visions in our minds? It's so poetic, that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the arrangement is beautiful. As you said, the finger-picked acoustic guitars give it a really wistful melancholy. The double bass part, as you said, it's... um, So in contrast to what you heard on Too High with with the synths producing the bass part, this is much more classically orchestrated continuing the jazz influence i guess that mm-hmm. we heard on the drums of, of too high this time it's the double bass yeah i really like i really really like this this isn't so much a criticism more of a question is it a bit too long is the instrumental in the middle a tad unnecessary i understand the question i don't agree i think it i think it works fine I, as i said it was it, it's a question it i think it's a beautiful piece of music i really like it but track two i just thought Hmm. Five minutes. Anyway, it's um, it's beautiful. Yeah, and he sounds amazing on it. Mm. It's a really good point, actually. And as stupid as this may sound, everything. Well, I've talked about. I'm not going to tie you with this brush. Everything I've talked about is about his musical vision, about his musical prowess. Well, you know, you talked about him playing all the instruments. He is a really, really good singer. He can be furious. He can be soulful. He can be poignant. He can be funky, often within the same song, as we're going to come to in a moment, in fact. He's a phenomenally accomplished singer, and that doesn't get talked about as often as perhaps it should. No, I mean, I suppose similar to um, a previous previous person that we've covered on The Clash, um, Prince, that you, you tend to talk about his musical virtuosity and you ignore just the sheer brilliance of his voice and lyrical content as well. Yeah, a very, very good point there. Yeah, I like Visions. It's one that I have to say when I first heard the album took me a little bit of time to warm to in a similar way to what you said about, say, The Children last week. Mm-hmm. But um, warm to it, I did. Yeah. And uh, I'm a big fan. Okay, so we go on to... Living for the city. It's an absolute classic. My first notes are funky, furious, and fabulous. Yeah, it's um ferocious is the word I used to continue the alliteration. Yeah, I, I could have included ferocious. I mean, his brother's smart, he's got more sense than many, his patience long, but soon he won't have any. To find a job is like a haystack needle. Fucking phenomenal lyric. Because where he lives, they don't use coloured people. I mean, there's metaphor, which we've both mm-hmm. talked about how much we like metaphor in lyrics. There's getting to the point. And then there's just fucking calling out and going, you racist pricks, fucking hell. Like, where he lives, they don't use coloured people. What a lyric that is. It is an absolute dissection of systemic racism in the US and the, the problems facing black America in poverty. And it's throughout the song, like the, the the little sort of vignette break in the middle where someone arrives in New York and then is locked up and, you know, the N-word is, is used by his jailer and, and all, all this kind of stuff. It absolutely calls it out for what it is. Absolutely. So on that, on that breakdown, so this is according to AllMusic, their retrospective, the voices in that sort of role play. So these were... these. The vignettes were recorded properly as a sort of 
radio play, if you want. <laughs> the voices on that include Stevie himself, his brother Calvin, his road manager Ira Tucker, uh, a serving New York Police Department police officer, and attorney Jonathan Vagoda, who is the judge passing down mm-hmm. the, the sentence. And like you said, it's this whole song tells the story of black boy who is born in hard time mississippi who sees the only chance for himself to to make a life is to go to new york and yeah that's where you get the breakdown and it's just like i pictured it the skyscrapers and everything mm-hmm. within minutes of his arrival he gets done in a drug bust he gets sent to 10 years in prison he comes out of prison he can't find a job he ends up homeless it's so evocative and an evisceration of systemic racism and you we can say in the united states i'm just going to leave it at systemic racism full stop yeah so yes the organ part and this is our friend the fender Rhodes, that organ part that is the the real hook to this song is wonderful the music allows stevie to belt out the lyrics to really ram home the message Mm -hmm in a way that is emphatic it's emphatic but it's not haranguing it's not yeah it isn't it isn't badgering it it's not it's not saying it's simply to make a point what it is is it's speaking the truth and the furious truth of what is the experience for black men in america at that at that time and unfortunately as as we spoke about last week the experience of African-American men in the United States becoming incarcerated through the the whole system and everything, everything there, you know. We mentioned George Floyd last week. We mentioned him before. It's, little has changed, sadly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I I love this tune. Can I, uh, a few things I want to say. So I talked about the Fender Roads. Mm-hmm. I want one. Just if, I want one. I really want one. <laughs> Only three grand. I, I want one. It's just, it, it's a phenomenal sound. I'm going to say it every time I hear it on a record. <laughs> um, no. So, we called out the British record buying public a lot last week. I'm going to give them some credit now. So, this was the second single from the album. It was released in November of 73. Number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. And a very credible, and a very creditable, excuse me, 15 in the UK. So this is the point where I um, I did mention it last week. <laughs> I'm going to call out the British record buying public again. Only UK number one was I just called to say I love you. The only one. Not superstition. Not living for the city. No, no. That. That was the song. Not, not, e- not even happy birthday. No, exactly. <laughs> not even happy birthday. Not even something like, isn't she lovely? No, 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 no. I just yeah. got to say I love you. A song that led the soundtrack to the Gene Wilder, Kelly LeBrock vehicle, <laughs> Woman in Red. Yep. <laughs> You've been dying to say that since we started this clash. <laughs> because honestly, it makes me angry every time <laughs> I think about it. A man with such a brilliant recording history has released so many transformative and important records. And that's the one. That's the one the British record buying public went, yeah, we'll get behind that. He, he did also do a song with Blue. So, you know. <laughs> Look, we all know that Artists lose their way as they get older. <laughs> We've all made mistakes. Dylan's Christmas album. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> oh, lose their way or their ability to pay tax, Bono. 
<laughs> For once, it wasn't me. <laughs> All right, I've got to do this. I've got to do me who sample.com stuff. Okay. So this has been sampled loads, and I want to call out some of the samples because it harks back to a previous class that we've done. So it was sampled in a song uh, recorded by Eazy-E and MC Ren. It was also sampled in a separate song by Ice Cube and sampled in a song that we have covered before, Black Steel and the Hour of Chaos by Public Enemy, sampled mm. Living for the City. Covered ten times, including by Ray Childs, okay. Toto, <laughs> and Bonnie Tyler. Oh. <laughs> Bonnie Tyler, covered Living for the City. I, I just want to move on. <laughs> okay, fine. Golden Lady. <laughs> okay, Golden Lady. I fucking hell. You, I have rendered you speechless you with really that, have. haven't I? <laughs> like, I, do, I can't even begin to imagine that, and I don't want to. I'd never want to hear it. Is it not just your brain cannot compute the idea that Bonnie Tyler uh, performed a song that was not written by Jim Steinman? <laughs> I mean, it's it's the concept of of Bonnie Tyler being able to do nuance. <laughs> well, fair. Through gritted teeth, I, I'm going to say this now. We're going to have to do some Steinman at some point, Kev. You're going to make me do meatloaf, aren't you? I mean, I I, I don't think either of us are going to enjoy it particularly much, but <laughs> I think we're going to have to do it at some point. Anyway, we're going to have to get the meat out. <laughs> Not today. Not today. Okay, we move on to Golden Lady. It's more of a traditional love song, really, than anything that's you know been on the album previously. So I've I've put a a point down here, and there's a question mark next to it. Easy listening funk. Ooh, okay. But I don't think that's not a criticism. So I've said that I think this sounds the most similar to anything on what's going on, and and I say that because it's got the most traditional in inverted commas orchestration on it Mm -hmm. and less electronic instrumentation i like the way it builds from something quite simple at the start to something almost euphoric at the end to be honest with you yeah it's it's a great um bass opening yeah it's brilliant i sort of know what you're saying about easy listening funk it's accessible funk is perhaps a kinder way of saying it it's definitely too long. It's five minutes long, and I could do without the key changes that see it out. It's just it's unnecessarily long. Yeah, I'll agree with that. But it could probably do with losing a little bit of the end. I think you can lose 60 seconds, and I'd be a much bigger fan of it, to be honest with you. What has happened? This is weird. <laughs> For the last two weeks, I've been the one saying that it thinks it's... But anyway, this is too long. The last minute, minute and a half, is just the chorus over and over again sung in progressively higher keys it's not necessary it's um too much what i do want to say is that his voice sounds so smooth and soulful throughout that. brilliant yeah really good as i said I, I despite that i do like the way that this builds to, mm-hmm. to, to to the joyful ending so yeah fair play okay and that's side one done yeah so then we open side two with higher ground fuck me what an opening <laughs> And, well, this is an evisceration uh, this time of government and a call to arms to people to essentially stand up to government. But at the same time, it is 
and this is one of the things I love about it, it juxtaposes that through the verses with the chorus, which is all about spiritualism Mm -hmm. and, well, reincarnation. I'm so darn glad you let me try it again, because my last time on earth I lived a whole lot of sin. I'm so glad that I know more than I knew then. Gonna keep on trying till I reach my highest ground. Yeah, that I love that juxtaposition between verse and chorus. Whew. Can I just I wanna come back to the, the accident? Well I was about to I was literally about to come in and say Okay, then you go, you go. That given that sort of lyrical content around the chorus that you talk about what Steve Stevie sort of went through and how the accident sort of gave him and he talks himself about how it it gave him a new perspective on life and whilst this song was recorded and everything before the accident that he even admitted himself that it had it had a greater meaning and impact afterwards mm-hmm. yeah so as always i am full of quotes so tour manager ira tucker he said i remember i got to the hospital in winston salem man i couldn't even recognize him his head had swollen about five times normal size and nobody could get through to him i knew he really likes to listen to music really loud and i thought maybe if i shouted it in his ear it's not quite the same thing though is it ira (laughs) it might reach him the doctor told me to go ahead and try it and it couldn't hurt him First time, I didn't get any response. I mean, probably because you're fucking deaf and dim, lad, but you know. (laughs) The next day, though, I went back and got right down his ear and sang higher ground. His hand was resting on my arm, and after a while, his fingers started going in time with the song. I said, yeah, this dude's going to make it. Stevie, he said, as you alluded to a second ago, the accident opened up my ears to many things around me. Naturally, life is more important to me now. I'd like to believe in reincarnation, and I'd like to believe that there's some other life. I think sometimes your consciousness can happen on this earth a second time around. For me, I wrote higher ground before the accident, as you said, obviously, but something must have been telling me that something was going to happen to make me aware of a lot of things and get myself together. This is like my second chance in life to do something or to do more and to value the fact that I am alive. Brilliantly put, to be fair. Yeah, can't argue with that. One of the things, so obviously I talked about the sort of evisceration on, of government and sort of the powers that they like. So the the line, powers keep on lying while your people keep on dying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we talked about Marvin Gaye last week getting it absolutely on the nose again. There's no bullshit there. There's no hiding it. And this is this is one of the contrasts between the two albums, actually. Marvin's style throughout what's going on was to be very soulful with it, and it never sounded, and this isn't a criticism by any stretch, it never sounded furious. This does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I said, you've got the juxtaposition between verse and chorus, which I love. But Living for the City and then this, this is furious. This is... I'm fucking calling it like it is. Uh, whereas, I guess what's going on is much more of a plea to people to wake up and see what's going on around mm-hmm. them. This is more a, well, screaming down your ear hole, fucking pay attention, dickheads! Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, like that's a, that's a good way to describe it. Okay, I just, I just want to talk musically. So we, we, we're both big fans of this song. The rhythm section, ironically, given what we talked about with the accident, it keeps things rolling along, and I've said, like a truck along a highway. <laughs> but do you know what I mean, though? It is, 
But like, it's all about that organ part, isn't it? That bass line that the organ brings through. Fucking hell. I mean, just the the whole the whole collection of what's put together by Stevie is it's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's so funky. The pace of the song, yeah, tem- tempo. Sorry, um, it's as you say, it keeps rolling along and it it doesn't let up. It's it's so funky, but it's so it, everything about it is brilliant. Like just all the constituent elements come together, and it's great. So. Covered ten times, most famously by Red Hot Chili Poppers. Red Hot Chili Poppers. <laughs> That's surely I mean, a cover band. I, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> most famously by Red Hot Chili Peppers. It probably what was their breakout single? I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's not great. Their cover. I know you don't like it at all. No. But the reason I wanted to focus on that is is I want to refer to another LA band. We've talked about the ferocity, yet the the musicality of this song. Bear with me on this. Mm-hmm. Rage Against the Machine. I can see a direct lineage from what Stevie's doing here to what Tom Morello, Zap De La Rocha and co are doing 20 years down the line because there is the the rhythm that's driving everything forward, the musicality in Tom Morello's guitar playing, yet the ferocity in Zap De La Rocha's lyrics. I'm not saying it's a one step ahead, you know, one mm-hmm. step up the ladder. But can you see my point at least? No, I, can, I think there's a real lineage here. I can understand where you're coming from. I mean, without question, because obviously Rage Against the Machine were hugely influenced by Public Enemy, who yeah. without question were hugely influenced by this. So, you know, yes. talking about there being a link and a lineage between the two, there, there's no question about that really. Okay, fine, then just undercut my point. Fuck you. Go on. <laughs> okay, and on that, um, on that, I think we've pretty much covered higher ground. So Yeah, whatever, go on. <laughs> so we move on to Jesus Children of America. If you want. Well, do you have it? I'm gonna be really passive aggressive <laughs> for the rest of the album. Well, because like I've managed to make your point better. No, because you managed to... Comp- no, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> because fuck you, that's why. <laughs> okay, do you want me to start? start again? No! Okay. No! <laughs> <laughs> Go on then. Okay, so we move on to Jesus Children of America. And is essentially a denouncement of religious corruption. And it's, you know, denouncing um, charlatan religious leaders and that. Um, has never sound so funky. Interesting. Perhaps I've missed something. I, I didn't interpret the lyrics in that way. Mm, okay. Tell me, Junkie, if you're able. Are you playing your cards on the table? Are you happy when you stick a needle in your vein? Hey, hey, tell the children Jesus died on. Cross for you. Mary is just looking at you. Mother Mary feels so much pain. I took this quite literally, I have to say. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have written... There's pious, and then there's standing on a street corner yelling at people about the rapture. And this is definitely towards that end of the scale. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, yes, as you say, it's funky as hell. Maybe I've missed something. I didn't sense that subtext, if you like, that you've just mentioned. But, uh, well, as I've said, I may well have missed something. You have been listening to this album for far longer than I have, so... 
you know, feel free to um, tell me why I'm wrong. So, you know, so there's there's the whole sort of section that, you know, tell them, don't lie to them. Don't tell, don't tell lies, tell them, don't lie to them. Yeah, okay, fine. That's, um, at the risk of this developing into an argument, I, I wouldn't say that is abundantly clear that it is the centre of the song. It's a part of the song, yes, but it's not, it doesn't seem to be the centre of the song. It doesn't seem to be as obvious as the lyrics that I've just quoted. And I, I, I so, again, okay, well, so there's, there's the, tell me, holy, holy roller, are you standing like a soldier? Are you standing for everything you talk about? So it, it is calling out sort of fake fake preachers, you know. No, fair enough. So I'm really glad you mentioned that Holy Roller lyric because I'm going to slip off on a tangent here because, I mean, that lyric is a direct quote from Come Together. But in the way, not so much in the sound of the song, but in the syncopation in the vocal, I really do think this is perhaps not a response to, but an homage to Come Together, the Beatles song, obviously. Just in the way that he sings it, that's a good thing. Okay. I just want to say that I'm, I'm, I'm getting from your reaction. You don't quite get that, but there's a, there's a way. There's a the, the rhythm and the syncopation of the lyrics to me mm-hmm. calls to mind come together. And when he when he quotes that holy roller lyric, I thought, mm-hmm. okay, um, okay. Despite what we think the lyrics may be about or not about, or what we've interpreted, or what we have interpreted them to mean. I think we can both agree this is a fucking banger. Oh, yeah. I mean, the synth work is absolutely fucking great, and it's key to the song. You you just absolutely lose yourself in the funk and the instrumental bit. Like, it, it is just so... Like, it just grabs you straight away and takes you. It does. It does. So it's another one that builds from a fairly mm-hmm. subtle start. But when it does get going, it's one where again the electronic sound, the the tonto synths, are right at the core of what this song is. And I'll just come back to what I said when we were going through the background. That vision to blend what is ostensibly, whether it's critical of the church or not, what is ostensibly a gospel song mm-hmm. with electronic emerging electronic sounds is just to me incredible yeah it is and i I think just just to briefly return back to our sort of discussion on the on the lyrical themes I i suppose what you can what you can say just thinking about it a little bit more that it's denouncing fake religion and yes calling people to to have true faith maybe that's a way to look at it that is a very good point uh, so yeah, I know, that's a good point. Actually, I, I think you, you you're spot on there. Okay. So I mean, it's it's great. I don't think there's anything more we can say about it. Indeed. Okay. So then we move on to "All in Love Is Fair," a song about his divorce from his wife, Cyrita Wright, and it touches on the promises and hopes in a relationship that doesn't really come to fruition, and it's a beautifully tragic meditation on. A relationship which doesn't work out. Yeah, it is, and it's bears saying at this point that his separation and divorce from Sarita Wright was amicable, unlike Marvin Gaye's with Anna Gorty. But you're absolutely right, you know. But all in love is fair. I should have never left your side. A writer takes his pen to write the words again that all in love is fair. Yeah, it's filled with regret. 
it, it, you know, for so for a breakup song, it's incredibly respectful towards his ex partner. It's a lament for mm-hmm. for the relationship that you thought it was going to be, and it 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 didn't work out that way. No, exactly. So I think that is echoed in the production of the song as well. It's a much simpler mm-hmm. composition than every other song on the album, but. The way that, that you've got that opening piano part and then the sort of descending bass line that comes in. It's really, really lovely, this. Yeah, it's beautifully tragic. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that. I've said I've said filled with regret, but yeah, that is a much more poetic way of putting mm-hmm. it. Um, so it's been covered by both Jennifer Rush and Barbara Streisand. Well, it is a, it is a proper ballad. You it know. is. It does sound like, and I—I I mean, I don't—I have no interest in hearing either of those color versions. I'll just make that clear. No, not at all. But it does sound to me like a song from the soundtrack of a Broadway musical. Mm-hmm. I can picture the protagonist of the show standing in spotlight, as if to mimic a street lamp, mm-hmm. and it's sort of raining down on him, belting this out towards the the end of Act Three. It is Tony Award-winning material. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, despite poking fun of it, fun at it then, I do really like this. It's a beautiful piece of music. Yeah, the simplicity of it works so well. The it doesn't need the bells and whistles because if you had if you had more going on musically, then it it would undercut the lyrical content and the lyrical content is so strong and poetic and you know, mm. yeah, the the balance works fantastically well. It does indeed. Um, and yeah, that's about all I've got to say about it, to be honest. Okay, so we then move on to Don't You Worry About a Thing, which has a real sort of Latin bossa nova feel. Just a bit. <laughs> to the sound. And it's a complete sort of change to what's been before. And it really picks the album up after the previous sort of song as well. So you said uh, bossa nova. I've said it's salsa-tastic. <laughs> Uh, it, um, let's say, borrows a melody from Horace Silver's song for my father. That's not a criticism. You know, we've talked mm-hmm. plenty of times about, about inspiration and influence before. It, it It's merely a fact. But uh, that riff, whoever wrote it, it, it is impossible not to move your hips to. For, even for me, who, believe me, I am no dancer. <laughs> <laughs> Nor am I human. <laughs> um, it's... Um, I love it. Sorry, I can't say anything. I fucking love Don't You Worry About Thing. So it's absolutely perfectly balanced. It's described by Chris Harvey in The Telegraph as it sounds and feels like a burst of summer happiness. Oh, lovely. And I don't think I can, I don't think I can put it better than that. No, I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. Um, so it was the third single from the album. It was released on the 5th of March, 74. It reached number 16 on the Hot 100 Billboard chart, and number 13 in Canada. I mean, it's fairly simple lyrically in terms of it's it's basically Stevie Wonder singing to a girl, a woman, that he will look after her and that everything will be okay and that she should not worry about a thing, obviously. Listeners of a certain age may recall a 1992 cover by British acid jazz outfit, Incognito. <laughs> I do not recall that at all. I do. Uh, it's atrocious. <laughs> that does not surprise me. No. 
uh, despite that atrocious cover version, I, I I I have very little to say about it other than I really like it. I really like the the Latin uh, infusion, if you like, with it. I think although it's a very different sound, as you said, it's a pick me up from the song we've just heard. It doesn't sound out of place on the album. Yeah, I, I'm big fan. Yeah, it's it's great. It's it's a just a really good song. And of course, it wouldn't be the last time that Stevie um, used Latin influences on his music either. Yeah, and very much comes up in uh, the next album uh, he records. Mm, indeed. Okay, uh, so then we end the album. Again, in a flash, really. Yeah. We said this about, sorry to cut you off, we said this about Marvin last week. That was 35 minutes, nine tracks. This is a bit longer but you what? You you can't be more than three quarters of an hour on this with everything it's got to say, even with a couple of love songs in there as well. It's um, well again, you know, Noel. <laughs> I mean, he clearly does take note of Stevie's work, as we talked about when we went through Morning Glory. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, sorry. So we finished the album with "He's Mister Know It All." It's the description of a know-it-all con man who is a man with a plan and a slick answer to all his critics. It's said to be a song about Richard Nixon. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Said to be, widely believed to be. I couldn't find any direct quotes, but um, I mean, it is about Richard Nixon yeah. though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> what I would say is Richard Nixon does not deserve anything so remotely as catchy or funky as this tune. So, so my, um, my note here was... Has a criticism of a politician ever sounded so good? No, it has not. The balance between the piano, uh, the voice, the drums, everything, is it's pitch perfect. It is pitch perfect. Um, has a criticism of a politician ever sounded so good? Uh, the only thing that comes to mind would be the Arcade Fire song featuring Mavis Staples' You Give Me Power. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great song as well. It is a great song. So... At this time, Nixon was right in the middle of the Watergate scandal, mm-hmm. which is, say, one of the reasons why it's it's been said to to be about Nixon. I think it's a great way to end this album. It's very simple musically. The piano part is great, but it's it's all the song needs. It's it's steady. It drives the song forward with that simple rhythm. It, it provides the canvas uh-huh. for Stevie to paint the picture with his words, yeah. with his voice. It's, it's, a, it's a nice way of nice way of putting it. A really, really good way to end a really, really good album. Big fan. Yeah, definitely. So, I suppose this is the point where we move on to look at the reviews. Yeah, have you got any reviews you want to go through? So, yeah. Um, so, almost universally praised. So, five stars in... In the Rolling Stone, in L- in the LA Times, in All Music, and in the New York Times. Um, so I'm just going to read read this uh, from from the review. So Stevie identifies himself as a gang and a genius, producing, composing, arranging, singing on several tracks, playing all the accompanying instruments. At the centre of of his music is the sound of what is real. Vocally, he remains inventive and unafraid. He sings all the things he hears rock, folk, and all forms of black music. The sum total of these varying components is an awesome knowledge consumed and then shared by an artist who is free enough to do both. Brilliant. So I do have a critical review from John Tiven from Circus. 
Just when Stevie had some momentum going, he went and put together a concept album of homogenous music and rather typical lyrics. Unlike his last two albums, there are no real low spots on the album, which I suppose is an improvement, but there are no songs on Inner Visions which are truly outstanding either. There's no superstition, no I believe when I fall in love it will be forever. By constructing a solid ground from which to work, Stevie has lowered the ceiling and put a dampener on his talents. Bollocks. Hard disagree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So before we come to Nobby, I just want to read one more. So um, this is uh, John Bush for All Music in his retrospective review. He wrote, When Stevie Wonder applied his tremendous songwriting talents to the unsettled social morass that was the early 70s, he produced one of his greatest most important works, a rich panoply of songs addressing drugs, spirituality, political ethics, the unnecessary perils of urban life, and what looked to be a failure of the 60s dream, all set within a collection of charts as funky and catchy as any he'd written before. This astonishing commentary is one of the most effective and entertaining we've heard. Much better that, yeah. John. Completely agree with what you've said compared to your namesake, Mr. Tiven. And Roberta Flack said the album tapped the pulse of the people. Oh, very good. High praise indeed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, what did Nobby say? <sighs> Again, unedited, guys, so brace yourselves, because this is long. It's neither Wonder's attraction to cliches nor his proud belief that he's the peer of anyone who can read this that leads him to render his mental life in a visual metaphor. It's because he's got no use for abstraction. He's technical, physical rather than logical, conceptual. Here, once again, he treads the fine line between glossolalia, no idea, and running at the mouth. Any suggestion that the bitter defeats of living in the living for the city, excuse me, are as unfactual as the dream come true of Golden Lady is simply irrelevant, because both are the truth. And unless he snuck one past me, and Golden Lady is about the sun, which would be interesting, that song is the worst on here. This is music that makes you believe in faith. Almost like Stevie, who only knows that leaves run from green to brown because he's got no choice. Fucking hell, that was long. I mean, I misread it about 25 times, and I'm not fucking surprised. Jesus Christ. First of all, he completely loses his structure, and sentences drift into oblivion. Oh, God almighty. I think we just leave that there. Go away. Yeah, exactly. That was awful. Okay. So I suppose to talk about the legacy of the album is that is essentially the continuation of the golden period, which arguably ends with the recording of Hotter Than July in 1980. But this period is, he's imperious. He is pushing boundaries. He is doing things that no one's doing. And he cements his his musical legacy during this, this run in the 70s of absolute gold. Yeah, exactly. So, what? you got 74, he comes out with a fulfilling this first finale, which is a really good album. Then, 76, his songs in the key of life, which is his magnum opus. A double album with a bonus EP attached to it. It was um, critically and commercially his most successful work. As you said, Hotter Than July is in 1980. Then the 80s happened and... 
you've already mentioned, I just got to say I love you. The eighty the eighties happened for a lot of, of artists that we that we like. Indeed they did. Bowie <clears throat> Excuse me. McCartney. <laughs> yep. The start, you know, like we'll just leave it there. There's lots of people lost themselves. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And well, yeah, you're right, you're right. But he's still going strong. Yeah. So he headlined Glastonbury in 2010. Well, you were there. You know which year it was. Yes. And he was great. Yeah. And he just last year he released two new singles. Um. So he's you know he's still going. Fair play to him. I haven't heard the material he released last year. I don't know if you've heard it at all. I've heard it. It's it's fine. It's you know it's it's nothing amazing. It's it's later period Stephen Wonder. Which we say a lot. I know I said it about a few artists recently, you know, the, the the Manics, the stuff that Massive Attack came out with last year. It's always, it's fine. It's okay, it's, you know. Which is, you know, you're not soiling your legacy, Yeah, I suppose, is what you can say. What I would say, legacy-wise, is that, and you, I don't think you can talk about one album of Stevie Wonder's in isolation. You have to talk about everything he did in this period, in this period of immense output you know it's such a prolific time in his career Mm -hmm. in terms of volume and quality he is one of the most influential artists of all time let alone his generation Mm -hmm. he is rightly seen of one of the all-time greats his work from 72 to to 80 and i would say certainly the early part of that period cements that position as I've mentioned a few times, my admiration, my awe at his ambition, at his creativity, at his innovation throughout five or six albums in this period. I would go so far as to say that it is the most prolific period in any artist ever. Certainly alongside the Beatles from 66 to 70. Is the only thing that immediately springs to mind. Maybe Zeppelin's first four, but even then, Zeppelin three's not fantastic. No, I'm going to say it. It's like five albums between '72 and '76 that are phenomenally consistent. Yeah, it's consistent quality. Exactly, exactly. As I say, the only artist, the only group that that you can speak about in the same breath for me is is the Beatles from Revolver to Abbey Road. Uh, you could probably say deserves to be spoken about in the same terms, but I'm struggling beyond that, I've got to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, That's about it for Legacy for me. Okay, so best song, worst song. All right, do you want me to go first? Yep. Okay, I'm going to go worst song first, and it's it's Golden Lady, but only because it's too long. I really like it, but it's too long. Simple as that. Probably agree with that. Okay, Uh, my best song. This is tough now. Living for the City is a great piece of work. It's funky. It's got a killer groove, but it's got really biting social commentary with it. I think Don't You Worry About a Thing is endlessly danceable and just a really uplifting, summery tune. But it's higher ground. I've got to pick higher ground. It's just phenomenal. Bring the funk, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What about you? So... You know, there's so there's so much that's great on here. So you've you've already called some of the songs. I mean, something like Miss, uh, Mr. Know It All. It, it's brilliant. Jesus, Children of America is is funky as anything. Visions, you know, is 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 great. 
but I'm going to come down on um, living for the city because it's just it's brilliant. the The whole thing is just a a caustic exposition on the ills of of society. Yeah. Okay. Both great choices. Yeah. I can very much understand where you've come from, so I'm not going to get into an argument about it. Both really good choices there. Okay, so now we come to the hardest the hardest part. So with it being um, your choice, we'll go, obviously, you you first on what's going on and then me first on Inner Visions. Okay. I mean, what can you say about what's going on? The A hasn't been said by countless people before us, and B, we haven't already said last week anyway. It is, it was, a phenomenally brave project and a remarkable achievement, both musically and culturally. I mean, there's some glorious soundscapes. As I mentioned when we went through the album last week, it's got a lot in common with Pet Sounds in that thematically and sonically, it maintains that consistency throughout. And for a concept album, that is important. And we talked about that when we did Sergeant Peppers. And I've got to give it mm-hmm. I've got to give it some recognition for that. I mean the high points are they are they are perfect, to be honest with you. What's going on? Inner City Blues, they've got everything. Soul, funk, orchestration, rhythm. It's glorious. The album itself isn't perfect, okay? So it's not getting 10. There's a couple of tracks that I struggled to get into. But, but, and I didn't say this last week, and I should have done, what I need to say is that every song has something to say, and every song has something of value and of meaning there. I said last week I can't put myself in 1971. I can't put myself in that mindset I can only imagine what it must have been like and the only word that I can come up with to describe that is revolutionary. And as we said, the legacy is absolutely huge and, and led to what we've just been through on in Visions. Oh, this is hard. This is really hard. Nine out of ten. Nine out of ten. It's it's not perfect, but it is phenomenal. I really, really love What's going on? So I'm giving it nine out of ten. Sorry, that was really, really long, Kev. Sorry about that. Okay. Go on. So, firstly, I want to say bastard because um, I had sort of I was working in my head what I was going to say, and I was going to use the word revolutionary, and you nicked it right at the right at the death. <laughs> so, what? As, as you say, it's it's difficult to kind of sum it up. That it's visionary. It's it's transformative. It completely changes the musical landscape of what's possible with an album. As a concept album, it works perfectly. I have more fondness for the tracks that you struggle with. There isn't anything wrong with this album as far as I'm concerned. And amazingly, I am going to finally give a 10. Hey, there you go. (laughs) Because it's perfect in my mind. There's nothing I can criticize about it. Fair enough. Okay. It's, I can't remember. No, it's not our highest scorer. It's Screamer Delica got 19 and a half. Because mm-hmm. you gave it nine and a half and I gave it 10. So it's it's just below Screamer Delica. But okay, fair enough. I I, I, um, I can't criticise you for that. So, uh, and I'm glad that you finally decided to stop being a shit ass and give something a 10. Well done. <laughs> uh, okay, I mean, 
Inner Visions therefore has a really, really steep mountain to climb. Uh, where are you going on it? Okay, so it's an amazing album. Again, it completely changes the musical landscape when it comes along. The, it pushes the boundaries of electronic music. It pushes the boundaries of soul music. It pushes the boundary of pop music. It takes what's going on's legacy and it runs with it. And it covers so many bases, but it also has the cla- it also has classic Stevie love love songs. It has a it has a lament in there for a, a tragic lament for a broken relationship. There's funk. There's so much going on. It's there isn't a bad song on it. So I'm gonna I am gonna have to again. It's got a ten. <laughs> He's gone mad with power, this fella. Fucking from hell. from having from having no tens, I've gone twice with a ten because it is absolutely perfect. I have no criticism of it. <sighs> Fucking hell, you've you've given me a difficult yep. task here, mate. It's all down to me. I mean, okay, to, let's let's just go through my notes first. It's another one where it's difficult to say anything new. It is probably my favourite Stevie Wonder album. Um, fulfilling this first finale comes close, but I think this probably edges it. As I said, the only song I criticised on it is just because it's too long. And there's three absolute classics on here which would sit alongside any of the best tracks we've called out on any album so far. I agree with exactly what you said. The messages it has are compelling they are still relevant today, just as they are with what's going on, and they are so powerfully delivered, you cannot but pay attention to them. Musically, yes, I agree exactly with what you said about its innovation, its adoption of emerging trends of electronic music, which I've said many times I'm bang into. Oh, God, this is tough. This is tough. Do you know what I'm going to have to bring this down to? It's which one works better as a concept album. There's two love songs on this album, which aren't bad songs, but they're love songs. And so they don't fit within the concept as well as the tracks on what's going on. And so I'm going to give Innervisions eight and a half. I have to differentiate between them somewhere. And that's where it is. Innovisions is not a complete concept album in the way What's Going On is, and What's Going On inspired Innovisions. So What's Going On deserves to win this clash, in my opinion. It gets nine. Innovisions eight and a half. That's how close it's been. Okay, fair enough. I would argue that probably scored a little too low, but, you know. Well, okay, fine. But at least I've seen fit to differentiate between the two albums, which you couldn't be asked no which i couldn't because they're both brilliant they are both brilliant and as i say i'm i'm it's that, that's really tough and i've literally just decided upon that in the last few minutes but yeah i do have to say as as a concept album what's going on is more complete than innovisions and so there that's why i've chosen it as the highest score so for for me i knew before we gave out the scores that i was going to give what's going on a 10 i knew i knew that Inner Visions had a real long think about it. And yeah, I can't find anything wrong with it. So it is my favourite Stevie Wonder album. Okay. Well, that's that then. 
despite it being your favourite Steve Wonder album, it has lost. Unfortunately, yes. Only marginally, but Marvin Gaye is the winner of this album, Clash. It's a worthy victor, though. It is a worthy victor. We should do this more, though. We, we, the whole thing is called Album Clash, and I do feel like we, we, we under-emphasise, we undercut the Clash thing by just moving so swiftly on. So I'm going to try and make this a bigger thing. Congratulations, Marvin. You have won Album Clash. At the, the highest accolade that anyone in the music industry could aspire to. Which... <laughs> we need to start editing Wikipedia. <laughs> that's a great shout. That's your job. After you've done the Spotify playlist. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's very much um, going to... Like, we're talking years before we get round to that. Uh, okay, then, Kev. What is the next stop on our road trip of musical cities? So, we do not move, city. We, oh. we stay in Detroit, but we change genre completely. We go back a couple of years and we f- we see MC5's debut album, Kick Out the Jams, mm. go up against The Stooges, The Stooges. Oof, that has come right out of left field. Yeah. One of those albums I am almost entirely unfamiliar with. I mean, not entirely. I mean, everyone knows Kick Out the Jams, but I've never heard the album uh, well, okay. Yeah, there we go. So that that's your homework for next week. Um, we're back in Detroit, but we're very much um, going for a different sound. Great stuff. Okay, so I assume I'll be taking us through MC5. Yeah, and I will be taking us through the Stooges. All right, brilliant. Before then, though, Kev, Twitter. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do for my second um, Twitter thing this this week, but... Thank you, Twitter, for um, the trending thing, which was Homer. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so on the UK quiz at Tipping Point, um, someone was asked, in the epic poem, Homer refers to nectar being the drink of the gods. What is the food? And the answer given by the contestant was, Mr. Parks? Donuts. Yes, it was. <laughs> Never underest- underestimate the great British public's ability to come out with a stupid answer on a quiz show. So, yes, thank you for that trending topic, Twitter. Um, And whilst on Twitter, you can also check out our page, at Clash Album, if you uh, want to go for carefully curated uh, and carefully crafted quality content, go to Clash Album or send us an old school email, albumclash at gmail.com. Great stuff. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, we hope you're enjoying our, our tour of musical cities, although it appears our car has developed some mechanical problems and we're staying in Detroit. Ironically, in the Motor City. <laughs> I was going to say, what better place <laughs> to get it sorted than Detroit? Yeah, great stuff. Looking forward to that. Um, until then, well, as we always say, get in touch. If there is a musical city that you think we have yet to visit that we really need to, let us know what it is. If there is a clash that we have completely ignored that is crying out to be covered, let us know what it is. If there is anything you can't get out of your head, tell us what it is. If there is a video that killed the radio star that you wish we would talk about, let us know what it is. You know what I'm talking about. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Really, really appreciate it. It's a privilege to do this for you guys. We really enjoy it. Hope you guys are too. But yeah, for the next clash, I'm going to take us through MC5's Kick Out the Jams, and Kev is going to go through... The Stooges by The Stooges. 
But until then, I have been Tim. I've been Kev. And we will see you next time. Take care now. Ta-da. Ta-da.